So today's message, and if you have a Bible, um, break it out. If you have a phone app, open it up. Um, today's message is from the book of James, chapter 1, 1 through 4. It should be on the screen. James, a servant of God and the Lord Jesus Christ, to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So here's a little background about James. Um, James is a short book in the Bible. It's five chapters. Um, it's an excellent read. James is a half-brother of Jesus. Um, there were there's a total of, of four brothers. You had Jesus, you had James, you had Joseph, and you had, um, I'm sorry, James, Joseph, Jude, and Simon. You know, and as a side note, I got thinking about this. What's it like to be the half-brother of Jesus? You ever think about that? I mean, you had half-brothers running around, you know? Who's your brother? God. You know, that's kind of odd, right? Or, um, and I'm sure they didn't have Mother's Day there, but since Mother's Day is coming up, just think about what they would do for Mother's Day. Maybe Jesus would, would um, look at James and say, hey, James, what do you get mom for Mother's Day, right? And James would say something like, oh, I made her a birdhouse, right? But then, then James would look at Jesus and say, Jesus, what do you get mom for Mother's Day? And Jesus would say, well, I'm giving her everlasting life. You know, that's kind of hard to compete with. So I think we all know who Mary's favorite son was, right? Uh, getting back on track. So um, we've got James's writing. It's immersed in Jesus's teaching and in the Proverbs, Jesus spent his whole life in Israel. Um, he was born there. He lived there. He was known as the pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Okay, He was also martyred there. He was, he was killed. <clears throat> James wrote this letter to the Messianic Christians. That means the Jewish Christians, those that converted. Um, so we need to put ourselves in that place in James and understand who he's writing to. Although it's relevant in our lives, picture who he's writing to. He's writing to these Jews that converted to Christianity. And at the time that he wrote this letter, they were being persecuted. They had um, Saul of Tarsus. Uh, you, you, may, you may or may not know, but Saul of Tarsus ended up being Paul, one of the, the coolest apostles out there. Wrote some really great books. Uh, love them. But anyway, Saul, at the time, um, he was actually chasing down these Christian, Christian Jews and murdering them, um, persecuting them. So they were in a time of persecution, time of trials. <clears throat> so what James is doing here um, during the time of persecution, and that was called the dispersion. That's why it says to the 12 tribes of the dispersion. Um, James is addressing them on how to find joy in the midst of all this persecution. In John 15, 11, we were told these things, and in context with the rest of that chapter, he's talking about love, I've spoken to you, that my joy may be with you, may be in you, and that your joy may be full. So I think we see here that John's telling us there's a correlation between love and joy, right? And we know that love has different forms. We've heard that before. Um, in Greek, you have agape love, that's God's unconditional love for us. And you have eros, love. In Greek, that means uh, a romantic love. So I think we can deduce that if we have different kinds, 
Well, first of all, we can deduce that since love is related to joy and there's different types of love, there must be different types of joy. So that's what Paul's talking about, or James is talking about here, all these different types of joy. There's, there's three different types of joy that James talks about. He talks about a joy that we get from what God has already done through Christ, a joy in what we have right now as far as what's working in our heart, through, especially through trials, and then a joy of the future, our eternity. James starts this letter talking to the Christian Jews, and he says, count it all joy, right? I don't know if that's what I would have said if I was in James's shoes. I think I would say, sucks to be you guys. You know, you're getting hunted down. People are killing you. They're hanging you on a cross. I, I would probably would have said, you guys need to run and hide. You know, I'll keep you in my attic or down the basement. I'll feed you. But, man, it's, this is a bad time. But that's not what James says. He says, count it all joy. So that just seems absurd. And when you read that, and I've read this many times, I never really understood how James could tell his brothers in Christ to count it all joy when they were being persecuted. Well, in Scripture, words take on different meaning. And in Scripture, sometimes you'll be reading it, and we'll just read a sentence and we'll glance over words and just assume that we know what they mean, right? Even simple words like the word count. Well, what, what James is saying here isn't, be joyful, you know, a child died, don't go out and party. He's not saying be joyful in that situation, but be joyful in the context of what God's doing in your life. What, what is the eventual outcome of something that stresses us? After unpacking the entire book of James, it becomes clear that James is talking about what's called practical righteousness. That's how you live your life. You see, the Jews back in the, this time, um, before they became Christians, their whole life in the Jewish religion, the way you please God is how you live your life, how you do things, your works. That's all it's about. So in the temples, that's what they tell you. You know, you got to follow the Ten Commandments. you got to follow all these rules. I'm just like here, you know, don't bring pork in, don't eat pork, you can only eat kosher food. There's all these rules and regulations, and if you follow all these rules and regulations, then you'll be pleasing to God. But what James is saying, no, that's not Christianity. What Christianity is your faith. Come to faith in Christ. Trust him. It's a relationship. And then once you're in that place, then you'll be compelled to go out and do good works. James tells us to see things, to see our trials that God's putting us on in as a mission. It's God's mission to restore our imperfections, to make us perfect. He wants to make us whole and complete, just like Scripture said. <clears throat> but it's not just God's job to do that. And I think sometimes we think that, well, I'll go to church, I'll hear his word, go home, God's going to work in me. No, we have to participate in this. And we participate in this by being in his word listening to Jesus' teachings, and then follow those teachings. So what's our normal mindset during trials? We say things like, well, I can't believe this is happening to me. Why didn't this happen to them? Right? We get very selfish, and we get greedy. Um, you see somebody that's really joyful, and, and you want to steal that from them. You want that joy. So 
James is also telling us that being self-centered and greedy will not bring sustainable joy, that our trials, our tribulations, and what God's doing in us, that's what will bring us sustainable joy. The way we see what's going on and the way we see things differently, like I did with my father's death, is the Holy Spirit coming into your heart. He's softening your heart. He's changing you. This is called regeneration. When the Holy Spirit comes into your heart, we're forced to decide. We're forced to decide between seeing these trials as something fearful and tragic and sad or to see these things through the lens of trust, trusting in God. So trust in the Lord that he will produce confidence regardless of the circumstances. God's going to meet us in our pain and our suffering and our anxieties. The greatest example of this is Jesus. God sends Jesus here, lives a perfect life, right? And Jesus knows he's going to go to the cross, and he knows what's in store for him, a horrible death. And Jesus asked the Father, Father, is there any other way? But being God, he knows that this is it. This is the most beautiful way, that this is going to bring crazy joy, the outcome of salvation of all God's people that he loves. So in his trial, Jesus put away those selfish and greedy things and focused on the joy to come. And that's what James is telling us to do. Christ freed us from sin so we could love God and love our neighbors and love our enemies. So why do we struggle with trust? Well, don't we always say, well, if I just had this or just had that, I'd be happy. Right? I think we all do it. I know I do it. But what happens when we get this and when we get that? And then we always want something else. It's our culture. Our culture, we're inundated it every day, all through the day. I mean, just think what it would be like if we were inundated with the gospel as much as we are with culture. Culture tells us, oh, you got you to look nice. You got to dress nice. You got to make money. You got to be successful. Right? Well, that's what we trust in. But we find out that our trust in that isn't going to bring us the things that God could bring us. Joy comes from seeking our desires. I'm sorry, joy doesn't come from seeking our desires. It comes from seeking God. He is our desire. Our soul is satisfied when God is our greatest desire. Joy comes from trusting that God has us in his hand. C.S. Lewis wrote, Happiness is not about what I have, but who has me. So we've heard that joy comes through trust and trust comes through faith. So how do we strengthen our faith? Well, your faith is like muscle. You go to the gym, you work out, you tear your muscle down, you stress it, and then you eat protein, you build it back up. Your faith is the same way. So think about this when you leave here today. You've got to build your faith. It's just not going to happen. So God helps out in this situation. He puts you in these trials. He's stressing you. He's stretching you right to the limit. And then what he does, through his word, he strengthens you. He strengthens your faith. So if you trust God, your faith is strengthened. And then you'll finally see that all things work out to be good. He's working on your steadfastness. And do you know how you measure your faith? You measure it in your conduct. So since we go through trials, we have a decision to make. 
we can allow our problems, like the coronavirus, the stress of that to pull us down. Or we can be joyful that God is doing something, doing something good in our lives. And we have to be patient to find out what that is. You see, God's word tells us for those who love God, all things work together for good. For those who are called according to his purpose. So he's calling you. Be amazed. Be amazed. He's calling you to do something special in you. He's testing you to do something special in you. He wants to make you perfect, and he wants to make you complete. So joy is God's promise, and no one can take that promise away. But we, we have a tendency to give it away, don't we? Um, you're driving down the road, somebody cuts in front of you because they want to be first at the traffic light, right? This guy's happy. He's in front of you. You're behind him. You're mad. He just, he stole your joy, right? But that's not really true. He didn't steal your joy. There's an enemy out there that does not want you to be joyous, doesn't want you to be joyful, doesn't want you to rejoice in the Lord. He wants to steal that from you. See, we're, we live in a broken world, and this is all around us. There's a battle going on. It's Satan. And he doesn't want us rejoicing in God. He's his enemy, and we are easy prey. We're easy prey because we live in a world, again, the culture, we're saturated in it. Let me give you an example. If you, if you heard Darren's scripture this morning, Psalm 1, uh, here's what the psalmist says. And, and try to picture this. It's a great example. Okay. Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Okay, so picture this. You're, you're, your spouse says, hey, go get some milk. And you're heading down the sidewalk. And you're walking, right? Blessed is the man that walks not in the counsel of the wicked. And you go by the bar. I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the bar. Love a cold beer. But you, you stop. You're supposed to get milk. You're walking by the bar, right? Well, then what do you do? You stand. And you're looking in. You're like, ah, oh, this looks great. They got the game on the big screen TV. Uh, it hasn't been canceled yet. Um, cold beer. Music's playing, right? And then what happens? You go in. And what do you do at the bar? You sit. So you were walking. You stood. And you sat, right? That's the influence that we have with our world. The enemy makes sin so much better, makes it look so much better than counting it all joy, especially in your trials. Satan's not going to make you steadfast, not going to make you perfect, and he's not going to make you complete. We need to be in God's word. His words will keep you from walking, standing, and sitting in bad situations. This is what Psalms is telling us. So, so we're t talking about the three types of joy. The first joy that was in my previous messages was a joy in what Christ had already done on the cross for us, our salvation. Okay, So that's past. That's what he's already done. And then James is talking about a joy that we currently have and what he's doing in us in our heart what the holy spirit is doing and then there's a third joy the third joy is our future god promises eternity in his life a place that is full of joy so focus your faith on the promise of god and remember your faith isn't believing in god satan believes in god it's believing god it's that simple 
Not believe in God, but believe God. Have trust in him. Trust him that in your suffering, he knows what to do. And that he's working on you. He's changing your heart, influencing your actions, and strengthening your faith. Remember I spoke about um, Saul of Tarsus during the persecution. He ends up becoming Paul, a beautiful writer, many epistles, many books in the New Testament. In Hebrews, he wrote 12, chapter 12, verse 2. He says, look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. This is the gospel. What a beautiful passage. So the beauty of the gospel of Jesus gives us joy from what God has already done. Today we see the beauty of the joy from what God is currently doing. And we also see the joy that's laid up in heaven for us. Past, present, and future. Count it all joy. Now before... Before we pray, I have a quick story to tell you. And I heard this story from another pastor, um, somebody that I listened to a lot. And he was telling us, he was in the same series about joy. And he was talking about somebody that he found an example of joy, um, a marvelous woman. And he knew she had been through hard times. So he, he found this incredible that she could be joyful her whole life. Her name was Jean. Well, when Jean was young, she got married. Um, and her and her husband had a little baby, a little baby girl, and they named her April. Well, they soon found out that April had a mental disability, that she would never have the mental capacity of more than a six-year-old. So it was very sad to them, and they knew they had their work cut out taking care of this child. Well, a couple years after that, she lost her husband to cancer. Well, now she's a single mom, and she has a disabled child, and she's trying to work, but she wants to spend time with the child, and she has to you know, go out and make money to take care of the family. She's all April has. Well, fast forward to the point, and remember, so she stays joyful her whole life, and, and the pastor notices this in church. Well, fast forward, she's now in her late 50s, and she goes to the pastor, and she said, um, I've got great news, I'm going to get remarried after all these years. And he said, okay, well, let's, you know, come to counseling, and then we'll set, you know, set up the wedding. So in counseling... Jean and Rick, her husband-to-be, are sitting there, and Jean looks at Rick, and she said to Rick, I don't know why you love me. Look at me. I'm, I'm getting older. I have all these wrinkles. I have this baggage. I've got a daughter that takes so much work. She just, it's very stressful, a lot of time. There's so many things we can't do because of my daughter, and I got financial burdens. You know, over the years, I, I've got myself into debt, and Rick looks at Jean and said, are you kidding me? I love you. I don't see, I don't see these wrinkles. I see them as dimples. And I don't see April's baggage. I love her. I want her to be mine as well. And your financial problems, God's been good to me. Um, I've done well for myself. I, I just want to take care of both you and April. Well, the wedding day comes and, the, you know, the pastor is going through the, the rings and the vows, and everybody's happy. Well, it's almost over, and Rick steps forward, and he said, um, wait a minute, I have one more thing. Well, he reaches in his pocket, and he pulls out a ring. 
And he said, I want to give this ring to April. And April's sitting down. She's down here in the front row, and she's about Abby's age, right? I think she's 28 now. Remember, she's a six-year-old trapped in a 28-year-old's body. And she's down here, and she hears this, and she jumps up. And she's like, I love you. I love you. I and she runs up on the stage, and she's yelling, I love you. I love you. And she's holding Rick, and she's crying, and Rick's crying. The pastor's crying. Everybody's crying. It's a mess, right? Well, when things finally settle down... The pastor takes his Bible and he says, you will not see a more beautiful picture of this book than what you just witnessed here today. You see, in this book, God says, I want to make you my bride. I want to put a ring on your finger. And what do we say back? Ah, oh, how can you love me, God? I've made a mess of my life. I've done so many horrible things. I got this baggage financial issues and what does God say back are you kidding me I love you I want you as my bride I want to put a ring on your finger also in this Bible what does God tell us I want to adopt you I'm going to adopt you as my child I want you to be in my family I want to love on you and I want to take care of you just like Rick said to April how happy we should be, just like April, when we understand the true gospel story, that we would say, I love you, I love you, I love you, like April did. So many people have this book wrong. They think this is a list of do's and don'ts, rules and regulations. They think that in this book, that it's a system of works, so you can gain God's love. It's never been that. It's never been that. This is a love letter to us. This is a book about a relationship with God. And his greatest command in here is, love me. His one greatest command is just, love me. Count it all joy. Let's pray. Father, um, we thank you for the day. Um, we lift up all those families uh, that are dealing directly with the coronavirus, um, whether it be just the illness of it or a possible death. Um, Father, we, we know that all things work together for good, and we need to be patient, and we can't wait to see how things turn out here with this. Um, Father, we, we thank you that you're not just a loving, but you are a just God. And we thank you for Jesus' half-brother James and the epistle that he wrote to the Christian joy, Jews about joy. And Father, we, we pray that we'll see more vividly what you're doing in our hearts and that we'll keep focused on not only what you've already done but what our future is. Nothing but joy in heaven, no more tears, no more sorrow, no more depression or anxiety. So, Father, just help us in these trials. We pray all this through the power of Jesus, the risen, and the reigning Christ. Amen.